The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Good morning, everyone. We are uh, winding down our David series. Uh, there's an end in sight. Um, I, I just kind of find it a little funny and uh, <clears throat> interesting when people comment on how long I preach the series here at our church. And so I think I did a pretty good job with David. We took about a year. We started in September of last year, and now it's only October, and we're kind of wrapping it up here. Um, in the last message that I preached, we looked at uh, chapter 19 with uh, David mourning the death of his son Absalom. And um, we only have a couple more messages left in this series. Um, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to jump, fast forward ahead, and pass chapters, the rest of chapter 19, chapter 20, 21, 22, 23, and I'm going to go to the very end, chapter 24, and look at this story of David taking a census, uh, because I think it represents sort of the last major sort of historical event that's recorded in the book of Samuel on David's life. All those middle chapters, there's a lot of these little stories in there that talk about the struggles that um, David is going to experience after the civil war that uh, Absalom instigated and what it was like to try to unite the nation back once again and how much of a struggle that was. And then there's some other things like a couple psalms of David captured in there, as well as a list of David's mighty men. And we're going to come back to some of that stuff in the last few messages. It's almost sort of like an epilogue to this whole series. But um, for the sake of continuity, I just wanted to sort of continue more with the storyline of how the plot forwards at this point by looking at chapter 24, okay? Uh, why don't we open up with a word of prayer and we'll, we'll jump right in then. God, we want to open up our hearts to you and pray that even as we go through some weighty and some difficult subjects that are uh, difficult both in comprehension and, and trying to wrap our minds around these principles and these ideas, as well as difficult to our hearts to really accept and to embrace, we pray that you would be with us as a sure helper to help us in our need and in our lacking, that uh, through the work of your Holy Spirit, your word would come alive in our heart and bear the fruit that you desire in each one of us as we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I think many of you may remember Norm MacDonald from his days on uh, Saturday Night Live in the mid-90s. Uh, some of you may be almost too young to remember that time. Uh, he served as a cast member for SNL uh, for four years and is probably best remembered for his role as the anchor for the uh, Weekend Update. Uh, he he kind of did that role unlike anyone else up to that point in time. Um, you you kind of either love Norm MacDonald or you hate him, you know? And I realize a lot of people hate him, okay? They just don't find him very funny. But actually, I, I think he's one of the funniest comedians. Um, since leaving SNL, though, um, he's basically largely sustained his career uh, mostly by returning to stand-up comedy. And so in a way, he's, he's sort of found his way back to his roots, uh, just going to these really small towns and doing stand-up again. And it's been kind of a struggle for him to go back to that after having such a visible national presence. Um, and in his recently published memoir, 
Uh, McDonald wrote these words reflecting on the trajectory that his career has taken. If I am remembered, it will always be by the four years I spent at Saturday Night Live. As long as SNL exists, then so do I. When people come to see me do stand-up, it is because somewhere in their memory I live on SNL, dressed as a young Burt Reynolds, insisting Alex Trebek refer to me as Turd Ferguson. And they, become, they come to see me, and I am old and fat. And I don't mention SNL. And I do my answering machine joke, and they are happily disappointed. After the show, they stand beside me and take pictures the way you would with a donkey at the side of a road. They tell me they are big fans, and they don't care what their girlfriends say. They understand me even though they know good and well that nobody else does. I'm dry, they say. The next time I come to their town, they don't show up. It can be difficult to define yourself by something that happened so long ago and is gone forever. It's like a fellow at the end of the bar telling no one in particular about the silver medal he won in high school track, the one he still wears around his neck. The only thing an old man can tell a young man is that it goes fast, really fast. And if you're not careful, it's too late. Of course, the young man will never understand this truth. But looking back now, I can see that my life since SNL has been a full sprint, trying with all my might to outrun the wolves of irrelevancy snapping at my heels. It has all been in vain, of course. They caught and devoured me years ago. It's an interesting transition in life, isn't it? When you no longer believe that your best days are ahead of you. Instead, you find that you have to look back to remember with fondness what used to be. And in some ways, it seems like this is the kind of trajectory that David's life seems to have followed as well. If you chart David's life, it doesn't go in this nice, clean, ascending line of progress with each stage of his life. Instead, if we were to map out David's life, it would be a, a pretty haphazard, jagged line all over the place with a lot of highs and lows from the beginning all the way to the end as we're going to see today. For me personally, it's been a really deep and rewarding season for me to study so intensely this life of David for this past year. Um, what a long way we've come since our exploration of David last year, of his early years as a teenager when he stared down Goliath and defeated him on that field of battle. We followed David through so many of his seasons of his life with all of its highs and lows and its joys and sorrows, all of his victories and his many failures. And through it all, we've seen a God who has demonstrated unwavering commitment and love to this man. Not because of anything that David deserved, but because of God's grace and his love for him. And when you think about a story as epic as the life of David, it seems like it ought to end with some huge bang, doesn't it? Some great final battle or some great heroic act 
that David does to close the final chapter of his life. And if the story of David were a fairy tale, then that's the kind of ending I think the author would have given us. Maybe swinging his sword (laughs) on a hill, the last man standing, defeating the enemies of God. But as I've argued over and over again throughout this series, it's not a fairy tale. And so instead, it ends with what appears to be a whimper, recording one last failure of David, just in case we forget what a flawed man this guy is, as if we weren't already convinced by everything that has already happened. Now, the book of Kings will actually give us a few extra chapters in David's life, sort of tell us how the very end of his life would end as a very elderly man and leading us right up to his deathbed. But the writer of Samuel chooses to end it here. And it's a curious decision. Why would you end the story of David with this one? But I think it's important that we pay attention to that. Because I think the writer of Samuel is inviting us to reflect on the core message that he has been trying to communicate to us throughout the telling of David's life, to say David is not a hero that stands over all of us larger than life. It's the story of a man filled with many flaws, but coming alive to God with each encounter, each challenge, each failure and sin. And so with that in mind, let's just jump right in and see what chapter 24 has to say about this man, David. In verse 1, it says, Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Now, it's hard to get past this first verse because it raises so many questions. In fact, I'm going to spend almost a third of the message just addressing this first verse, and then the two-thirds after that on everything else. That's how difficult this verse is. So we're told that God is angry at Israel. We're not told why. We don't know what Israel did. We don't know what sin they committed, but they have done something that has incited the anger of God. And as a result of that anger, he incites David to take a census. So based on this verse that the story begins with, it seems rather clear that God himself is responsible for David taking the census. But what's confusing is that later in the story, David will feel personally responsible for his own sin, his own decision that he takes ownership of. To confuse the matter even further, if you look at the parallel story of the census in the book of Chronicles, this is what it says in 1 Chronicles 21.1, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So who's responsible for the census? God? David? Satan, it's not easy to get a straightforward answer to this question because the Bible itself often gives us more than one explanation when it comes to this issue of causation. What caused this event to take place? 
When Moses told Pharaoh to let his people go, we're told in numerous passages that it was Pharaoh who hardened his own heart. Let me give you one example of that, Exodus 8.15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. So clearly, the responsibility falls on Pharaoh. But the problem is that there are also numerous passages that tell us repeatedly that it is God who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 9.12 is just one example. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said to Moses. So the first point that we can make about it this is this. God can use the choices we make, whether good or bad, to accomplish his purposes without diminishing our responsibility for them. And that is one of the great mysteries of the Bible, is how it is that God can be in control of all things, and yet there is a sense in which we also have freedom for the choices that we make in our life. It's what we can call a double causation. And that Double causation is seen in the story of Joseph, who reflects on all of the suffering that he endured in his life because his brothers sold him into slavery. And thinking about that whole journey of his life in Genesis 50, verse 20, it says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Again, you had your agenda and God had his and somehow both of them were fulfilled. This mystery of double causation was probably most powerfully demonstrated at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ himself. Look at what Peter says in Acts chapter 2 verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Here, the apostle Peter points out that it was God's plan that Jesus be crucified, yet at the same time, the choices and actions of evil men caused it to take place. Having said all this, there is still a mystery here that is beyond our limited knowledge, how we can understand this. And so this gets me to the next point, which I know is going to sound a little harsh, but please try to understand me that I mean well. (laughs) God does not owe us an explanation, okay? What I mean is this. We can explore all of these tensions in Scripture and explore so much that the Bible says, but what I would argue is this. At the end of the day, there is just a mystery here that we cannot fully reconcile. And I think it is the height of arrogance to think that we could fully understand and explain the actions of a God that is infinitely greater and wiser than we are. And so what I'm saying is there needs to be a... a, a humility and a faith when we come to these things. That there are times when we must learn how to obey without always fully understanding. And it's not easy, is it? If you sort of think about the frustration of a parent with a child that's just endlessly asking why, 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 and as a parent you indulge them and try to do your best to explain and yet she just doesn't relent. Why, why? And at some point you just 
say, it's not that you don't love this child. You just say your brain is not developed enough to grasp the answers to these why questions. So can you just get in the car and let the stranger stick a needle in you? <laughs> Because it's for your own good. I know you think I hurt you, but it's really for your own good. And if that's how it is as a parent with a child, that gap is nothing compared to our gap with God and how infinitely more knowledgeable he is than us. And yet, sometimes we have that stubborn pride to say, if I don't understand it fully, then I don't believe it. And I don't think it's true. I, maybe another way we could say it is this. If we are never surprised by the God we worship, if we never struggle with his ways, then I would argue that you are not worshiping the true infinite God of the universe. You are worshiping a figment of your own imagination, an idol of your creation, if he always agrees with your presuppositions and does everything according to your biases and what you think is right. There is a certain offense we encounter in certain actions of God that are not easy to swallow at times. And we're invited to wrestle with that. One last thing I want to say about this is this, to try to help us understand what's happening here in this chapter. The Bible is highly selective in the details it reveals for any given story. What I mean by that is this. Let me explain it a little. Each Bible author has a specific message that he wants to communicate through the stories that he is telling. And in order to communicate that message, to communicate that purpose for the writing of that book, the author becomes very selective in the details that he includes in any given story. And so the problem when we read these Bible stories is that there's so much that is left unsaid, unexplained, huge gaps of silence. And therefore, we have to be very careful about jumping to conclusions based on our own speculations and trying to force answers that the text itself isn't addressing. Let me just give you one example of this highly selective nature of the way Bible stories are often told. If you were here some weeks back, or a couple months back actually, uh, you know that we were looking at 2 Samuel chapters 11 to 12, which record what basically historians call the Ammonite War with Israel. And when we read that account in the book of Samuel, the author's almost complete focus during that Ammonite war period of Israel was on David's sin with Bathsheba. And we're given great detail about that event in David's life, of how he then would go on to have Uriah, her husband, murdered. And how after that, Nathan the prophet confronted him of his sin. Okay? Um, and yet, here's the thing. There's another parallel account of the Ammonite War in the book of Chronicles. And when the book of Chronicles covers the Ammonite War, look at what it says about it. First Chronicles 20, 1 through 3. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, Joab led out the armed forces. He laid waste the land of the Ammonites and went to Rabbah and besieged it. But David remained in Jerusalem. 
Joab attacked Rabbah and left it in ruins. David took the crown from the head of their king. Its weight was found to be a talent of gold, and it was set with precious stones, and it was placed on David's head. He took a great quantity of plunder from the city and brought out the people who were there, consigning them to labor with saws and with iron picks and axes. David did this to all the Ammonite towns. Then David and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. That's it. There is not a mention of David and Bathsheba. Why? Because that's not the focus of the author of Chronicles. What he was trying to convey is how David was extending the power and reach of Israel in that region and how God was blessing that and doing great things through David. But here's the problem, is that based on that account, you could easily but wrongly conclude that everything was going great during the season of David's life, right? If all you had was that account in Chronicles, you would say that's an awesome period in David's life. It's only when you put these two accounts together of Chronicles and Samuel, that you realize that during this time in David's life, David was experiencing great success as a conquering king, but also was guilty of a horrible sin. Both of these realities were true of his life during that time. And so we need to keep all of this in mind when we look at 2 Samuel 24. In our limited knowledge, we may come to the conclusion basically that God was irrationally angry at Israel. And in order to vent that irrational anger, he lures David into sinning so that he can use that sin as an argument to punish an entire nation and then blame David for it. Right? That's a way we could actually cast what's happening here. But in trying to understand what is going on in this story, we have to hold to these bedrock truths that God is good and God is just. Dale Ralph Davis says this, if we are upset over a text that tells us Yahweh is angry but does not tell us why, are we not saying that we really don't trust him to be just? Is there not a strain within us that insists there must be no mysteries in God? Don't we sometimes subtly assume that God owes us an explanation? We can easily brandish an arrogance that does not worship, that comes into the presence of the Most High with a strut instead of a bow. Are we angry because God is not perfectly transparent? Can we live and worship with mystery? Eugene Peterson puts it like this, God will not fit into our idea of how we think God should act. But if we stay with the story long enough, all the way to Jesus, we find that God is more, not less. Better, not worse than what we expect. Truth that is larger than ourselves, whether scientific or theological, is always at first baffling. It is painful to be torn away from the womb-like security of accepted concepts. Honest readers of the Bible spend much of their time scratching their heads. And those who teach others to read the Bible do well not to be too ready to cook up explanations that eliminate the difficulties. I think there's a lot of wisdom in those words. Don't, in other words, domesticate God to your own impressions of him, your own expectations of him, but let God be God and let us learn 
and understand the mysteries of this God and how he works. And so as we continue the story, David assigns Joab to carry out the census. In verse 2, so the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. Now we can say this, and hopefully if you've been following this whole series, you know it. Joab is not exactly a sensitive man who demonstrates much of a moral compass. But in this case, it is clear even to Joab that David is wrong in wanting to take the census. In verse 3, it says, But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? And so this raises the next perplexing question. What made this census sinful? What was wrong with this? I think the two most credible explanations for the sinfulness of it are these. First, the census represented a desire for military conquest not approved by God. In other words, the focus of the census is not just to get a head count of the entire general population, but as you read these verses more specifically, it's clear that it is so that David can number his fighting men, all of the young men who are capable of going into battle. And it's also noteworthy that it's not just a head count. But what he commands the army to do is he says, I want you to enroll them into the army. I want you, in other words, to conscript them like you would in a draft. And what's interesting is that throughout Israel's history, they had largely been a defensive army, meaning that the forces were put together to fight against the threat against them. But with this census, it suggests that David may have been interested in a more aggressive posture of starting unnecessary wars with their neighbors in order to expand his kingdom. And so that might be one of the reasons why God was angry at the census. The other possibility is this, that taking a census revealed a lack of trust in God. You could argue that David's entire life was a story of learning how to trust in God. So whether it was fighting Goliath or running away from Saul or struggling with even his own son Absalom who was trying to steal his kingdom from him, basically at every circumstance, God was trying to teach David how to trust in him. And after all of that, David is now seeking assurance from his military might. Psalm 20, verse 6 to 7 says, Now this I know. This is a psalm that David wrote. Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of our Lord, our God. But let's count them just to be sure. You see, David's decision to take a census seems to be taking him in the exact opposite direction of the very words that he had sung at an earlier time in his life when he trusted God and God alone. And so in verse 4 it says, the king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. It seems like Joab wasn't alone in his protest of the census. It seems like all of the commanders kind of ganged up on David and said, this is a really bad idea. 
Don't do this, my king. But David overruled all of them, and he insisted that they move forward with the plan. So they crisscrossed the country, counting all of David's fighting men and conscripted them into the Israelite army. And in verse 8 and 9, it says this, After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported the number of fighting men to the king. For Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle the sword. And in Judah, 500,000. Once David receives this report from Joab, there is this immediate change of heart. And he regrets what he has done. And so in verse 10, it says, David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. I want to say this. From one perspective, it looks like David has not shown much progress in his spiritual journey, does it? And I said this before, but some of you are actually really angry at me because you told me that I have made David look so bad through the series that you can never respect him again, you know? Um, It does kind of feel that way, doesn't it? As a youth, he is killing lions and bears and then giants. And in the wilderness, he is so good, so faithful, trusting in God. But as we get to his later years of life, all of his flaws and all of his failures start rising to the top. His failures as king, his failures as husband, his failures as a father. And now his story ends with just one more glaring failure with the census. And in some ways, this whole census business seems to prove how little David has actually changed, how little he's grown. But I want to argue that from another perspective, I think David has actually shown real growth in his life. Because think of the way that he reacted when he sinned against God with Bathsheba. He did everything in his might to cover that sin. And once her husband Uriah was dead, he ends up claiming Bathsheba as his own wife and even found out that she was pregnant with his child. And he basically just goes on with his life, literally knowing he had gotten away with murder. And also, not just that, but coming out on the other side with another wife, a beautiful wife, and even a child. In other words, without the fear of consequences, David did not disturbingly seem all that bothered by the murder and the rape that he had just committed. It would take God sending the prophet Nathan to confront him before David would acknowledge his sin. And even then, David is pretty clueless, isn't he? Because Nathan tells him the story about how this rich man stole one poor man's sheep and killed it so he could eat it. And David is getting all incensed. And Nathan has to say, 
dummy. You are that man. And then David says, oh, yeah, that's me, isn't it? But years later, when Shimei began cursing David, as David flees from Absalom, and he's throwing dirt and rocks at David, David does not retaliate. He humbles himself and repents and says, this is God's judgment on me. And now, without any prophet confronting him or any external consequence threatening him, David is filled with a deep sorrow and regret for what he has done. In other words, I would argue, David is actually growing. David is, in other words, displaying one of the real hallmarks of spiritual growth, a heart that is growing increasingly sensitive to one's own sin and repenting in a heartfelt way as a result of it. Eugene Peterson writes, David does not always obey God, but he always deals with God. David is not always sensitive to God, but he always ends up calling on God. David is not always prayerful, but he always ends up praying. And before we go on, I just want to drive this point home because I think it's so easy to gloss over it. I don't know if we truly understand how rare it is to find a man like David. I mean, as easy as it is to find all of the ways that David is no better than us. I mean, after all, how many of us are going to end our lives having become a rapist and a murderer? And yet, there was something that made David unique. Unlike most of us in this room, David was genuinely broken inside by the sin that he saw in his heart. It wasn't always easy to get there and get him to recognize it. But when he was confronted with it, he saw it and he repented. And I want to say this. It's sad. But the older we get, the harder it is to have this posture of heartfelt repentance in our hearts, isn't it? I remember those days in youth group, going to retreats, and when the speaker would talk about our sin, I would just feel my guts turning inside because I think he's speaking to me. That's me. But now as a 50-year-old, I have to acknowledge my heart is a lot harder. It's not as easy for me to acknowledge when I have done wrong. There is this growing stubbornness in me that wants to justify myself, that doesn't get as moved when the talk of sin enters the room. I just don't feel as convicted as I was when I was younger. In other words, I have kind of become used to my sinfulness. I wear my sin like I wear a comfortable pair of jeans. They've been with me for years, and it fits so comfortably. I think often when we think of our parents, 
and their generation were frustrated, right? Because they seemed so stubborn and set in their ways, right? There's this feeling like my parents will never change. It's too late for them. The synapses have hardened. But the truth is, I think most of us in this room are headed down that path of a hardened heart. And the sad thing is your kids may say the same thing about you. Don't bother talking to mom and dad. They're so stubborn. They will never change. I think what is so remarkable about David's life is that to the very end into his elderly years as king over a nation, he still had a soft heart when it came to repentance. And when he was called out on his sin, he knew it, and he understood it, and he repented. The story continues in verses 11 to 13. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. What is this? <laughs> Here's the thing. Even though David has repented, the message is this. God's justice must be satisfied. And so David is told, choose the nature of the punishment that's going to fall on your land for your sin, David. In verse 14 to 15, it says, David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. The weight of this choice is more than David can bear. He doesn't want to make it. And so his response to Gad the prophet is, all I can say is, I would rather fall into the hands of the living God than into the hands of men because I feel I can find mercy at the feet of God. And so before the punishment reaches completion, God does show mercy to Israel and commands the destroying angel to stop short of Jerusalem. And it goes on in verse 17, when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. It's remarkable to me how similar the situation is with what happened earlier with Absalom. Absalom, his son, had to face God's justice for the sins he had committed. But David knows that as a father, he had a part to play in the waywardness of his son. And so he feels the share in that guilt. 
And in hearing the news of Absalom's death, David cries out, My son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And as the first chapter of this verse, uh, the first verse of this chapter established, the plague was a result of God's anger burning against the entire nation, not just David. And so, like Absalom, Israelites were receiving God's judgment for their sins. And yet, at the same time, David knows that he too had a part to play in this punishment because of the census he took. And as he sees his people suffering, David once again wishes that he could spare his people and take this punishment on himself. But the problem is, he can't. It doesn't work that way. Neither in Absalom's case, nor in this one. As a response to God's mercy, David is commanded to build an altar and offer sacrifices on that spot where the angel stayed his hand. And in verses 18 to 25, it says this, On that day Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Arauna looked and saw the king and his officials coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Arauna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Arauna said to David, let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Arauna gives all to the king. Arauna also said to him, may the lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Arauna, no, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. Arana offers to cover the cost of everything, but David refuses to accept this gift pointing out that this sacrifice that he wanted to make to God would not be valid unless there was a cost associated with it. I want to say this. David's story doesn't give us what we would typically call in modern parlance closure. It's not a clean and satisfying ending to the David story. Instead, it closes with the tension of a final act that's missing. David was the greatest king that Israel would ever experience, who actually had a true heart to love and serve his people, and yet even he was filled with many flaws and weaknesses and limitations. And the question is left at the end of this book, how will the demands of a holy God be satisfied? How will justice be met for the sins of a nation? How can that happen with a sinful people and a flawed king? Here's the thing. Years later, when David's son Solomon would begin to build the temple, 
we're given this interesting detail about the site that Solomon ended up choosing to build a temple. In 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite, the place provided by David. Mount Moriah was the mountain where Abraham took Isaac, where God had commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, only to stop him before he could complete the act. And instead, on that mountain, gave him a ram to be sacrificed in substitution for his son. It was on Mount Moriah that David cried out for mercy to God on behalf of his people. And where David offered sacrifices to God when God heard his prayer and showed mercy. And it was on Mount Moriah that David cried out, if only I could die in place of my people. And it was also on Mount Moriah that Solomon, his son, built the temple in Jerusalem, where for years sacrifices were offered by God's people to atone for their sins. And so it's not surprising that 1,000 years after David, it would also be near this mountain where the Son of God would be crucified for the sins of the world. You see, David's story does not wrap up with a clean, satisfying ending because it anticipates another king better than David who could meet the demands of a just God and show mercy to us by offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And this is what David, even before Christ ever came, understood about the heart of God, is that God is great in his mercy. In other words, David's willingness to confront his sin with brutal honesty was rooted in his absolute trust in God's love and mercy toward him. He knew that God's commitment to him was not based on his performance as king or husband or even father, but in God's own faithfulness to keep the promises that he had made to David. And that is the confidence with which you and I can repent of our sins in our day. Because we know that forgiveness has already been given to us through Jesus Christ. Martin Luther says it like this. There are two kinds of sin. One is confessed, and this one should leave unforgiven. This one, this no one should leave unforgiven. The other kind is defended, and this no one can forgive, for it refuses either to be counted as sin or to accept forgiveness. Do you hear what Luther is saying? There's basically just two categories of sin. One that is confessed before God and receives forgiveness. And the other that is refusing forgiveness because it refuses confession. I don't have a problem. I don't know what's wrong with you. I don't know what's wrong with God. The problem's not mine. I'm okay. Miroslav Falv says this, Without confession, I will remain unforgiven. Not because God doesn't forgive, but because a refusal to confess is a rejection of forgiveness. 
Confession is hard. When I confess that I've committed an offense, I stand exposed, pointing an accusing finger at myself and at the guilt of my offense. Almost instinctively, I want to clothe myself with denials and exculpatory explanations. Yet we know that confession is wonderfully freeing. After we confess, we have nothing to hide, nothing to run away from. But how do we summon the courage to walk into the land of freedom through the gate of shame? Amazingly, God doesn't wait until we've confessed to offer and even enact forgiveness. God forgives before we confess. We know from the start that whatever it might be that we confess it will not be it, that we confess it will not be counted count it will not count against us. We are loved notwithstanding our offense. We are forgiven so we can be freed from the burden of our offense and return into the arms of the living God. In other words, what Miroslav Volv is saying is that God made the first move that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And when we understand that love of God toward us, it gives us the courage to be honest with our sins because we realize that atonement has already been made for us. It is now freely offered if we only confess and acknowledge what we have done. And so I want to just leave you with that thought as we close this message and start wrapping up this David series. It is the moralist that judges David and looks down upon him and says, see, that's the whole problem with the world. We're all in the same mud together. If we judge David by a moral scorecard, he fails. He fails miserably. But when we see him through the lens of God's grace and mercy, David is incredibly instructive as our teacher to show us the way to God and what God requires of us. Let's pray. As we... Um, Get ready to close out our worship service today. I want to give you just this, this moment of meditation and prayer to reflect yourself, on yourself. And can I just invite you um, to get back to what I was asking at the start of this message, um, just this wrestling with the, the hardness that so easily settles into our heart. And... Uh, as your pastor and involved in just you know, a fair amount of pastoral counseling, whether it's marriage struggles or personal sin struggles, addiction struggles, um, you know, when we look at all of the things that we're going through in our life, I think the common endpoint to all of it is just this fundamental struggle of the human heart to confess sin. And there's something just so deeply embedded in us that resists that confession. Something so stubborn in us that's afraid to confess. So if we learn anything from the life of David, let it be this, that David, with all of his failures, as glaring as they were, was a man who knew that God was great in his mercy. And so he knew 
even in the face of horrible shame and guilt, the only answer to the problems in his life was to be found at the mercy seat of God. And so, if I could invite and even challenge you to anything, it could be this, is are there some things in your life right now that grieve the heart of God? And could you acknowledge that in many ways you've sort of become anesthetized to that pain and you've figured out some really clever ways to to justify yourself and to hide and minimize and deflect. But the cross of Christ is an invitation to every one of us that the true king has come and has paid every penalty for our sins. And in that forgiveness invites us to come forward and confess and to acknowledge our sin, that we can find healing in his name. And so if I could just invite you to a moment of quiet meditation, and maybe you could ask that in the presence of the Holy Spirit and say, God, are there sins that grieve you about the way that I talk to people, about the way that I treat people, about my attitude even toward you, about these deep longings in my heart that have become idolatries that are consuming me? And God, I... I want to confess those to you today. I want to repent and return to you because I know that my acceptance is not based on my performance, but on your commitment to me because of what Christ has done for me. We just pray that for a few minutes and our worship team will lead us in a time of response. Let's pray.